Hey, Marvel fans! Hold up. Before we get started, we gotta let you know there are an extra five books out this week that we didn't know were out this week. We actually recorded the whole episode and we missed Fallen Angels number five, Savage Avengers number nine, Ghost Rider number four, Ghost Spider number six, and Star Wars Rise of Kylo Ren number two. That's just the way it goes, you guys. It's a new year. Things are happening. Don't worry, though. We're going to talk about these books next week. You're going to hear Tucker talk all about his Star Wars. I'm going to tell you all about why Ghost Spider number six is really good. Don't worry about it. We got a lot of great comics this week. Check out this episode of Marvel's Pull List. You're listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale January 8th, 28th. <laughs> Hello, Marvelites! You're listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale January 8th, 2020. You guys, I just said 2018 by accident, but we fixed it. We're okay. We're back in the present time. No going back. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And, uh, you know, every week we read all the new Marvel comics that come out. We get excited. We tell you all about them. We tell you little bits and pieces of the different things that are going on. We want you to enjoy Marvel comics just as much as we do. Tucker, how are you? I'm good. How how was it all for you? It was good. It was good. Uh, baby's first, first first baby holiday. Yeah, yeah. We dressed her in a little velvet gown, <laughs> and everybody at my uncle's house on Christmas Eve fawned over her. And then uh, you know she saw some other family and met some new friends over the the course of the rest of the holidays. Uh, it is. It was really nice. That's great. Yeah, it was good. How That's about awesome. you? What did you do? I journeyed back and forth to the old good old Blairstown, New Jersey a couple times. I'm wearing a t-shirt right now that has a, a, the name of a hot dog place about five minutes from that town in another New Jersey town called Buttsville. Yeah, it is. It That's says real. right on there. That is real. Um, with a Z. So if you're looking yeah. for it, it's with a Z, Buttsville. I want to know if any comic book creator has ever come out of Buttsville. Uh, or like a, a wrestler. Like, who are the standout people <laughs> who will say, I am a Buttsvillian? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't know. Mm, not many. I may have to move there. <laughs> uh, our, one of our IT guys this morning was trying to convince me to move to New Jersey. And uh, maybe Buttsville is in the future for me. Yeah. I don't know. Our good friend and colleague here, Tony Valley, will be familiar with Buttsville. So go ahead and ask him some cues. He can AM for he you. He just got married. Congratulations to him. He's Tony! not going to listen to this, but that's okay <laughs> because everyone else is listening to this and we are going to get into some new comics this week, starting with Arrow number seven. This one is written by Zhao Lifen, art by Kang, and the adaptation by Amy Chu with letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And this one really is starting to peel away the like the layers around Arrow's secret identity and the protection she has around it. Well, one of the things I really dig about this book is just there's this quirky Marvel humor to it where she just has this likable personality. She is very much a Peter Parker-esque character in many ways, but also really cool and having the architecture background. But just the the idea of her cool wind powers and the things that she's up against, it's a neat book. Yeah. My first book this week is Amazing Mary Jane number four. It's written by Leah Williams with art by Carlos Gomez, colors by Carlos Lopez, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I've 
been very vocal about loving this book, loving this series. And really it all stems forth for me. Obviously the art kind of captures this kind of spidey corner of the Marvel universe. I think it captures that spirit really well. But this book is kind of sneakily turning into like a great Sinister Six series at the same time, being just a wonderful Mary Jane story. We follow the narrative through her ways of dealing with things. And that may seem kind of like an obvious observation, but it allows us to get to know this character in circumstances that we haven't really seen her in that frequently, at least, at least at the center of things. So this being her her first kind of eponymous book here. So it is uh, just a really awesome, unique cauldron to put her in on the movie set, dealing with these supervillains and everything else swirling around her. Uh, I just think it works out to be like a really, like you just kind of said, a really Marvel story in that way, where it has the balance of the humanity and the superheroism very, very wonderfully. One thing that I that kind of stuck out to me this week uh, across a bunch of different books, and it was actually, I guess you could call it like classic Marvel in a unique way, but also not it's just, I thought there was a lot of weird stuff in books this week, which I love. I say that as a huge compliment. Oh, yeah. Just like the strange and mystical and monstrous and all that stuff. We'll touch on that more as we go on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a really cool uh, monster design in our next book, which is Amazing Spider-Man number 37. This one has art by Ryan Otley with script by Nick Spencer, inks by Cliff Rathburn, colors by Nathan Fairbain, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Otley's little monster designs in here are just a little minor part of it. But when you said weird, I immediately thought of like the monsters in this book and how their like eyes are off on the side of their head. They just, yeah. they, there's something about them that makes me go, Ugh, weird. Yeah. There's also this cool idea of the clairvoyance, this item that can see infinite possibilities and how Spider-Man uses that item in this one is, is pretty neat. But there is a thing in here, Tucker, I wanted to ask you, Spider-Man and Mary Jane, they have their long distance relationship and there's yes. a really sweet scene with the two of them as they are trying to stay close while they are 3,000 miles apart. Have you ever done a long-distance relationship? Well, it's funny that you mention this because I'm traveling to Los Angeles in about four days and staying there for a little bit in order to help move my sweet small girlfriend there for like, she'll be there for like the next four or five months. What? Yeah, so I'm about to be diving right into this. Maybe I'll give old Nick Spencer a ring-a-ding, yeah. see if he has any insights into it because he can write it so well. Yeah, well, you're now going to be arm candy, I guess, for <laughs> I guess so. uh, Hollywood uh, starlet of sorts. Yes, yeah, sure. Arm candy, like maybe like a candy apple that like from like 1987. What is the worst possible candy <laughs> You like if you were to uh, Charleston Chew. I don't know, man. <laughs> That's me. Charleston Chew. Just Chu. like rot your teeth if you like bite into it with like two molars combined, and then you like try and open your mouth again, it'll rip your teeth out. Okay, all Just, right. You are the Charleston Chew of yeah. the Marvel Universe. That's right. <laughs> uh, sorry to anyone who works for Charleston Chew, uh, or if you want to sponsor this podcast, Charleston Chew. Then it is the best. And my favorite candy, actually. I will not say that, but Tucker <laughs> did. Integrity. All right, up next is... Black Cat number eight. It is written by the great Jed McKay, with art by DK Juan and Annie Wu, colors by Brian Reber, and letters by Ferran Delgado. This is another one that kind of surprised me in a big way, because we have, obviously, the kind of super spy kind of infiltration, like fast paced kind of cinematic nature to this series that we've been riding along with. And it's so much fun. We have elements of that for sure in here alongside the Beatle. That is the new Beatle as in not 
beetle that we I think most recently saw in Old Man Hawkeye. Is it Abner Jenkins? Is he the beetle or is he the? F- <laughs> the, the, there's like the thunderbolts yes, and, and right. mixed in with the deadly foes and like my brain starts yeah. bleeding when i try to remember all like yeah. the like this is to be s- fair getting into some the, esoteric yeah stuff. like the c plus b minus right you know <laughs> yeah. tech suited villains yeah. which i love don't oh, yeah. get me wrong but this beetle she is the daughter of tombstone right and she is fantastic right so we have that we have felicia kind of on this really interesting mission with her but what was surprising about this for me is getting to know Felicia in a new way as opposed to the black cat. By that, I mean just seeing her as a person is kind of something that I guess I never really thought about much before as like one of Marvel's kind of most stylish characters, like one of those enigmatic kind of anti-hero, are they good, are they bad, kind of depends characters, a character with a lot of mystique to them, I think. Like mystique. Uh, exactly. To, to bring them down to earth in a way that makes them actually more interesting, that kind of heightens all of those colors and allows those character traits that were kind of hard to nail down in a way before, in a way even harder to nail down because you see the humanity at the heart of it and you wonder where the connections are. And it's slowly kind of emerging in a really, really interesting, unexpected way with this series. We have a scene in here between Felicia and her mom, which again, that's not a scene I would ever have expected to read in this book, even going back a couple of issues as we've really dug into this. But I loved it. I thought it was really, really fascinating. And for me, though, Those moments, they make the latter moments that we get into later in this book of the action, of the fight scenes, of the crazy explosions and things like that, even more fascinating. That's what it's all about, obviously. And to get it with a character that I really hadn't ever thought about in that way before is really, really cool. Yeah, that scene between Felicia and her mom is one of my favorites of the week, yeah. without a doubt. But also because of the art, I think it's Annie Wu who does those pages. Yeah. And the... Simple thing of the style of clothing she gives to both Felicia and Felicia's mom. Like Felicia's mom has this little scarf on and she just looks like like a cool mom. Yeah. Like, you know, she's like in her 50s or whatever. Like you could tell she's like cool. Yeah. There's something about her, the music that they talk about she likes. She wants to go on this cruise with a bunch of like, I think it was like 80s bands and it was just right. fun. It was right. really neat. And then Felicia's look was just, dope like her shirt kind of is angular like angled a little bit and she just looked awesome it's like this intangible thing that when you see it you're like wow that is really cool something like chris anka does yes exactly i mean it's one of the incidental delights of like comic books it's just like you have the story and you have these great characters and that's what a lot of people tune in for but then you had just like just these great costume designs exactly i think chris anka is the the probably standard bearer across the house of ideas right now. But yeah, this is so good. So dang good. All right. Up next is Conan Serpent War issue number three, written by Jim Zub with art by Luca Pizzari, colors by Frank Darmada. And uh, also you have art by Vanessa Del Rey on a different sequence and Jean-Francois Bellou as a colorist on that sequence and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. This again is a series which pits Conan and Dark Agnes and Moon Knight and Solomon Kane against the forces of Set across multiple time periods and places and it gets really weird. The thing that just like turns my stomach though is the like slithery slimy bits of creatures and things in this. And there's a way that the art in particular in this issue got under my skin in a really cool way. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, before you move on to Deadpool, uh, I forgot to mention when we we're talking about Black Cat, there's something I started doing this year where I'm going to take my favorite variant covers from the books that we get because we're lucky enough to get uh, to read these comics and see a lot of the covers uh, that we yeah. wouldn't normally see. And so as I go through them, I'm like, oh man, that variant cover is great. And we were in this new office. And so I've been putting up on my wall, one of my walls in my office, my favorite variant covers from every week. And I'm going to put them up on social. So in time with every new episode, as long as I'm able to do it, uh, I'm going to just showcase some of my favorite variants that come out. And they're, one of them is a great black cat variant that came out this week. And, you know, there's, there's tons more. It's really cool. If you want to see some variants that you may not normally get your hands on, uh, I'll be posting them up on social and hopefully we can get them linked to in the news article. Cause that, that should be an easy way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I was going to my local comic shop and like buying books every week, instead of just reading them here, I would just be getting variant covers every time. Like there's yeah. just so many incredible so things many on offer. Every week. So wild. awesome. Okay. Next up we have Deadpool number two, and it's my first pick of the week. It's written by Kelly Thompson with pencils by Chris Bacalo, inks by Wayne Foucher, Live Say, Alve, Jaime Mendoza, Victor Olazaba, and Tim Townsend with colors by David Curiel and letters by VC's Joe Sabino. We can talk now about what happened at the end of issue one, which was so unexpected and so exciting. And to have Craven the Hunter come through and just straight up murder what seemed to be one of our main characters. To see that happen, and Bellis was the character that got killed, uh, kind of getting the the big main villain into the game here, alongside all of the new responsibilities that Deadpool has, uh, was really, really cool. And Craven's having a moment right now, mm-hmm. again, which we talk about characters had kind of popping up in, in, in certain ways at certain times. I think he's one of them right now. What would you do yes. if... You had an enemy, right? Guys, and, I have many, by the way. Right, so one of your most like hated enemies was killed by cloned version of that enemy, <laughs> and then came back at you. But it wasn't the original one who yes. you have all the history with. Yes, but it was someone who looks pretty much exactly <laughs> like that enemy, and just wants to get at you just because. Yeah, how would you feel? Well, you know, I, I think I would just. It's one-to-one for me. I would just, boom, you might as well be that person. I'm mm. taking all my anger out on you. Even if you're just a vessel that doesn't really have any necessarily, you know, like knowledge of or experience of what their like clone origin did, I don't care. You're you're my mark. Wow. Coming at you with a damn uh, slingshot and a 1994 Ford F-150. I'll try run you over with. Can you drive? <laughs> uh, yes. And as a matter of fact, I used to drive a truck in Blairstown, New Jersey, as previously mentioned in this episode. Farm town. Used to drive one around back there. My name is Tucker. A lot of people call me Tuck as a nickname. But when I started doing that, a bunch of people started calling me Truck. Like that was my nickname. Hey, it's Truck. I have a friend named <laughs> Truck. He does a very famous art for Twitter. He does all the little emojis. Oh, wow. His name is Truck. All right. Well, anyway, to see all of this come together between Craven, between the Staten Island stuff, and really just immediately at full pace here in issue two is so much fun. But what I love most about it and what gives me the most joy is seeing how pissed off Deadpool gets, just how like annoyed he is, how frustrated he is. Uh, it's really funny because I, you know, I think we had like 
Well, last week we had Thor number one, and we have Thor who's kind of frustrated in his own kingly manner with his new responsibilities in that book. And we have a new king in this book as well, who is obviously going to handle that in much different ways, much worse ways, depending on your perspective and just kind of just very destructive, teenage angsty, depending, or just like, uh, there's a, there's a panel in here where, uh, Deadpool picks up Jeff, the land shark, and it just holds him right in front of his face and just says something like, when is this going to start being fun? Um, <laughs> the whole King thing, cause it's not what he expected so far. Yeah. It's great. I want to see Jeff, the land shark visualized in like other media. I know. Right. Yes. Can you imagine like in just in any like i want a jeff plush doll yep like jeff like like uh how would i like animation. a hand puppet yeah live action agree. uh like a muppet babies-esque tv show an emoji let's get truck to make an emoji uh 100 i would i don't think we have the budget here on marvel's pull list but we'll see what we can do i i love the the just tiny jeff moments in this book where you just know kelly writing these scripts is just like just leave these little incidental moments that don't really impact anything where she just will definitely write like, and Jeff is gnawing on this character's ankle. <laughs> like yeah. Just just on the side. You can barely see it. It's so good. It's tremendous. So fun. All right. Up next is Excalibur, number five, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Arciniega, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, designed by Tom Muller, and ya boy, Jonathan Hickman. I'm only going to call him ya boy. Jonathan Hickman from now on, because I know he would really appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, he would love that so much. Uh, but we... Uh, Jonathan look, Hick, young man. Oh, oh boy. Hey, boy. Uh, <laughs> gosh. Uh, look, if you are thirsty for some apocalypse action, this is your issue. Yeah. Uh, apocalypse gets into it with like everybody. And I like this version of Apocalypse because he is sort of like, okay, cool. Uh, we did what we had to do. Now, magic? I'm all about that. I'm going to wear this little like kind of shirt, show off my sweet abs, still got my big A belt buckle. People are going to know what's going on. Uh, I need your help. You're going to do this thing for me. I need your help. You're going to do this thing for me. So he's still being manipulative and super powerful, but he's also not, I don't want to say softer or more like endearing, but there's just, there's something to him that is slightly different in this story, which I really, really appreciate. That said, he gets to throw down with, a couple of the members of Excalibur in this issue. And you get that old hostility brought back to the fore in this new landscape, which makes it feel really cool and really fun. Marcus Toe's action is just so, like, he has this way of drawing characters as light and airy and excited, and the action is big, even when you're getting to massive energy blowout throwdowns it's uh it's got something cool and like almost animated to it mm. and the last page uh you know we haven't really been talking about those last page moments a lot lately yeah uh, but this one has one of those which i always love i think that's so important for comic books to have that thing that makes you go oh I, I need the next issue now yeah seeing this book and then reading strike force as well teeny's other book this week those both for me, we're like, oh, this is the weird action I want because it's this it's the mystical realm. It's like other places. It's just a, a bunch going on below the surface. Uh, I'll talk about that more a little bit later. But my next book is Immortal Hulk number 29, written by Al Ewing with pencils by Joe Bennett, inks by Roy Jose Bellardino Bravo and Cam Smith with colors by Paul Mounts and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. We know the reputation that this book has. We know that it does things that no other book does. 
especially when it comes to those stranger, uh, like skin crawly, just amazing monster work or work kind of in other planes of existence or of the mind. We have journeyed from, you know, the most minuscule moments inside Bruce Banner's head to across space and time and the universe and reality and what we know to be life itself in these 29 issues. And in this issue, a lot of that monster's action comes right to the fore, comes to Earth, comes to a bunch of different places and different people that would rather not encounter these kind of monsters. It is really, really cool to see the conflict between the Hulk and the Hulk's kind of new, I guess, kind of band of misfits or this crew that he's kind of by hook or crook ended up alongside that conflict with Roxxon just come to a simmer and now come to a boil and it's just getting hotter and hotter and hotter. There is so much to that. And in this issue, there's so much monster action, which is, it's just a gift to get Joe Bennett unleashed on some weird strange monstrous action and i'm talking huge monsters like stories high attacking crushing buildings monsters some of these remind me of pacific rim kaiju right the the designs are cool they don't they they're just like off a yes, little bit yes. there's something weird and sinister and multi-planular yes I, I know exactly what you're saying and and that was exactly what i was going to say as well is that you can feel different kind of influences on these monsters like you can feel some like jack influences in one or two of them but then you feel like lovecraftian influences i mean we have these different you know kaiju or monsters or what have you they've each been given different nicknames one of them is called harryhausen which i love one of them is called lovecraft one of them is called bradbury you know there's so much in here and i love the kind of nods to those different things and i think it acknowledges the fact that there is you know that not just is this a very marvel book and it has roots in so much of those things but it is really pushing boundaries beyond marvel history beyond you know i think just generally what one would expect with this kind of book it's it's so so multi-layered it's so impressive there's just such detail such amazing writing, such amazing work from the entire team. It's one of those things to see an issue like this be churned out, which contains, I, I wanted to add, for my money, the most powerful two-page spreads in Marvel Comics. Just anytime we're getting one in this series, it is going to knock your socks off, unlike almost anything else. But to get that all in here is is really just like a, a pretty stunning feat every single time. And these guys make it look easy. All right. Up next is Magnificent Ms. Marvel. Issue number 11, written by Saladin Ahmed with art by Minkyo Jung, inks by Juan Velasco, colors by Ian Herring, letters by VC Joe Caramagna. Ms. Marvel in here is very much fighting a version of herself because her costume has, no surprise, <laughs> turned on her. Come on, Kamala. You are the biggest fangirl for all superheroes. You know this was going to happen. One of my favorite bits in this issue is her running around and trying to save people, but she doesn't have her costume anymore. Yeah. And so uh, at one point she meets a bunch of people who are like, oh my gosh, you're Ms. Marvel. And she uses her morphing ability to change her face to this really... Yeah like cartoony smile and the people are freaked out. They're like, 
have a scarf and some sunglasses. Please stop that. <laughs> it is really funny. Uh, I, I dug the crap out of that. Totally. Okay, next up we have Marvel's Avengers Thor, number one. This is written by Jim Zub with art by Robert Gill, colors by Andy Troy, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is one of the uh, prequel stories to Marvel's Avengers coming May 2020. And it's so cool to see the iterations of these characters that we're going to get, most specifically here with Thor. Obviously, we've encountered so many different versions of that character here. So to get our clear vision of what we're going to encounter in the game is so much fun. And on top of that, we get, yeah, Thor versus Hulk. What more could you ask for? I could ask for better pizza that I had today. I had oh man, mediocre Midtown New York pizza. That should not be a thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, agreed. But I am not here to talk about pizza. No, I am here to tell you about my first pick of the week, which is Marvel's X number one with a story by Alex Ross and Jim Kruger with a script by Jim Kruger, art by Well B, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Well, B is a name I'd never heard before. Yeah. I'm unfamiliar with Well B's previous work, but knocked my socks off. Oh, yeah. Old colleague uh, Ben Morse did an interview with Well B and talking about his influences, talking about what brought him to this project, all that good stuff. It's on Marvel.com. Check it out right now. Ooh. This is a prequel to the Earth X trilogy or the extra, however you want to call it, Earth X, Universe X, Paradise X, the uh, which is... 20 years old mm. uh, now. The first issue of Earth X came out. Well, technically, the first issue was like the first time we heard about Earth X was 1997. <laughs> you know, Wizard Magazine thing. Anyway, uh, it, it was 1999 when this really started and, you know, 50 plus issues. I've been in the middle of a reread of all of these for this. A reread Williams? A reread Williams of uh, all of these for This Week in Marvel, because we're going to do some cool stuff with that. So this one just had its hooks in me from the get-go. But, you know, when we get into Earth-X, if you reread Williams that, it is <laughs> 20 years of a gap between sort of the Marvel universe that you know and when things start to completely fall apart in that alternate reality. This is the story of how more or less what's in that gap of time, how those things happen, what was going on. Uh, a lot of those bits and pieces were fleshed out over time in Earth X and Universe X and Paradise X, but this gives a different view. And it, like I think the use of Marvels here is really important because you get a sort of POV from someone with no powers. You get a POV of everything around them being wild and huge. And, and in this case, terrifying and heartbreaking and and devastating but the person who is our pov character is just trying to survive yeah and he's also someone who's like a huge fan of superheroes yeah. and like powers and he doesn't have them it's kind of heartbreaking mm -hmm. well be coming in here is neat because the artists on the original series were were john paul leon were uh doug braithwaite and this sort of gritty scratchy, uh, moody art. And this art is that, but also with extremely popped colors. It is like really lands off the page into your eyes. He's, you know, at one point he's wearing this like Iron Man shirt and the red off that is so bright and vibrant. And then you get other moments where you've got these cool muted colors. There's just something to this art that I think is going to grab people and really make them turn their heads and see what's going on. But if you know the original story, you know that 
humanity was mutated, sort of set off this big chain of events. And it was part of a larger story about what humanity's purpose really was. This is ground level of the changing of humanity. It is a very human story amidst otherworldly and terrifying events. Highly recommended, especially if you are a fan of the original stories. Nice. Okay, next up for me is Miles Morales, The End, number one. It's written by Saladin Ahmed with Talk About Great Art. Art by Damian Scott, colors by Dono Sanchez Almara, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. The look of this book really, really blew me away. I also always want to give a special shout out to Raza, the cover artist on all of these The End books, I believe. This is telling a final story for this character. It is a kind of farewell final tale for each of them, and this one is the Miles version. And I love how bold it is. I love how bold it is, not just narratively, brought to you by Saladin, but artistically, because it's a look that, you know, I don't normally associate with Miles in comics because it takes, for me, it takes the kind of classic Spider-Man angles and movement uh, and exaggerated features and just ratchets it up even more where you get this really... um, Uh, kind of cartoony, really expressive look to everything that I just really, really, really enjoy. Here, Miles is an old man. He's old. He's got gray hair, gray beard. He's also Mayor Miles Morales of Brooklyn. Other things with like what Genki's life ended up being, you know, in the future past of this story is so cool. It is just Really, really, really wonderful work going on here. I think it speaks to the enormous imagination, the incredible ability of Saladin Ahmed, realized beautifully by Damian Scott. But again, this one, this one is a tearjerker. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think if you love Miles, this is such a great read. Yeah. If you have a child who loves Miles Morales and you want to make them cry, (laughs) make them read about old man Miles' last stand. Yeah. Force them to read it. Take their tears (laughs) in a little cup. Drink their tears and grow strong (laughs) like you would if you were drinking blood like Michael Morbius needs to do in Morbius Living Vampire number three, written by Vida Ayala with art by Marcelo Ferreira with inks by Roberto Poggi, colors by Dono Sanchez Amara, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This issue, this series, fits a really cool slot in the Marvel Universe and the Marvel Comics line right now of like this gothic horror drama series that has just this nasty, really kind of weird, again, you talked about weird earlier, feeling for the comics and seeing Morbius mutate and and twist and change. And you can almost feel bones breaking and reforming and Spider-Man gets involved and it's, it's gnarly and it's super cool. Totally. New Mutants number five is what we have on offer in the Dawn of X here. It is written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Rod Rice. Letters by VCs, Travis Lanham with design by Tom Muller. This series obviously has been a little bit of a handoff back and forth, a wonderfully packaged and executed handoff between ya boy, Jonathan Hickman. Ya boy. That's right. And Ed Brisson. Jonathan taking the reins on this issue. 
it's really interesting reading each of these Dawn of X books because I remember when House of X and Powers of Ten were happening, hearing Jonathan Hickman talk about how perfectly things shake out into the Dawn of X, how perfectly out of House of X and Powers of Ten things emerge and settle in and how the kind of silt settles to the bottom of this like raging river here. So reading each one of these books kind of enhances each of the other ones, even if necessarily like the narratives aren't overlapping or, or specifically calling to each other. Just seeing the space that each of them occupy is so much fun. And to see what makes each of them unique, to see what makes each of them their own thing. And when I say space that each of them occupy, that's perfect for this because this is kind of turning into the cosmic side of the Don of X. And this is really, really staking its claim as, on that side of things. So to have that setting for this team, a team that quite clearly Jonathan Hickman adores, a bunch of characters that so obviously have had an impact on him that he writes with such care, with such love. And that doesn't mean that he's not testing them every single turn of the story because this is a doozy. I just love that balance of all of those things. It's a very charming book. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, just you're so right. Just gets you. Yeah. That's exactly one of the things that comes to mind for me. Is that's what I talk about with the the love that Jonathan has for these characters, that Ed has for these characters, because you feel part of their community, part of their friend group, part of that team. It's all very tangible and real in that way. Next up, we have a journey to the Ravencroft Institute for the Criminally Insane mm -hmm. with... Ruins of Ravencroft, Carnage number one. This is written by Frank Thierry with art by Angel Enzueta in the modern day and flashback art by Gaiu Villanova, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. There's some gross stuff yeah. in here, man. Yeah, it is. Frank Thierry played a big part in the buildup to Absolute Carnage and wrote some really excellent tie-in books to, to all of that, which I really loved. And it felt very perfect and perfectly tailored to Frank Thierry's kind of writing style. So to have him take over here and essentially explore the history and the deep, mythical, disturbing past of this place just feels so right because we're on the journey towards reopening Ravencroft. That'll come with Ravencroft number one, which will be at the end of these Ruins of Ravencroft one-shots. And we have the modern day story, which includes Misty Knight, which includes Wilson Fisk. Really, really cool. And then we have flashback elements to this story going back to the 1400s, which is really, really cool. We see the early like Native American influence on this place. We see essentially the dark and dangerous and deadly history that kind of fertilizes the soil of this place in some ways literal, in some ways not. But I love that there's kind of real humanity imbued in that backstory. It's not as simple as like, here are the people and then this like bad guy came and wiped them all out and then this is where the result is. There is more swirling allegiances and betrayals and just like I said, more human qualities to it that make it even more kind of terrifying and sickening and strange and just adds to all of that throughout it. And this is Ruins of Ravencroft Carnage for a reason. If you've been reading anything that Donnie has been doing over in Venom or if you read Absolute Carnage, this 
will really hit home in really fascinating ways, ways that I think reveal a ton about a bunch of different characters in those books and those stories that digs in again to the past and really informs where we're going in the future with Ravencroft. And it's... It is a very nasty book. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will go, yeah, Thierry, that makes sense, writing it. What people don't always know about Frankie is he is a big softie. <laughs> and he may hate me saying this, but I look forward to getting his family's Christmas card yeah. every year. And I will not say what is on the card, but it makes me so happy. <laughs> and knowing that he writes something like this with disturbing right. images right. And, and, and story qualities and knowing who he is outside <laughs> makes me so happy. Yeah. I love Frank. <laughs> All right. Up next is my second pick of the week. It is star number one written by Kelly Thompson, art by Javier Pina with Philippe Andrade, colors by Jesus Apertav and lettering and design by VCs Clayton Cowles. Do you know who star is? Let me tell you who star is. Star is Ripley Ryan, and she was a magazine editor, similar to Carol Danvers was back in the day. But she actually got to interview Captain Marvel and then the current Captain Marvel series, and then things changed. She was kidnapped by the nuclear man in the big story. She ended up gaining superpowers, and that all fell apart. She was beaten. Her, like, heart was ripped out by uh, Captain Marvel, in a sense, and, like, some big trauma happened. But she actually then became fused with the reality stone. And that is an interesting thing. After the Infinity Wars storyline from two years ago, year and a half ago, year ago. Oh, man. We read a lot yeah. of comics. Yeah, that's hard to remember. I uh, think 2018 it was. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Just yeah. over Wrapped a year ago. Wrapped up at the end yeah. of 18. The Infinity Stones went off in all these different directions. And we don't know where they all are. We did see that the Time Stone connected to a dude named Hector Batista. And now we know that the Reality Stone has sort of merged with Ripley Ryan. And so this gives her the ability to mess with reality. And that has a, the reality stone for me has always been a really interesting one of the stones yeah. because it's so amorphous. Like, what do you, what does that mean? What do you do? It's almost like you could do anything. And that kind of is true. And you can almost do anything, but there are limitations. And I love the way Kelly writes that she has Ripley going through different moments in here utilizing the power of the stone and and the art in here is wonderful javier pina and um the colors especially jesus arbatov this glowing red element that is added when she starts using the stone it, it has a limitation and the way that is put forth explained without like forcing it and yeah. like it is just so clever and so fun so comic booky i love it this is also a book about a piece of trash right like ripley is a dumpster fire of a person. <laughs> she is in the parlance of Marvel Studios Guardians of the Galaxy, an a-hole. <laughs> and I love it. I that is a very difficult thing to do in comic books to get a good like villain-ish book to keep going and make you compelled to read it and and sort of like it and not either completely hate the main character or fall in love and turn the main character into a superhero. Yeah. Like, I don't think Ripley, I don't think Star should ever be a superhero. She's 
trash. I want her to be trash all over <laughs> to cause chaos. And here she causes chaos for Jessica Jones. She causes chaos for Loki. She causes all this kind of nightmare stuff. And she's not repentant. I love that. It's a good dynamic. Yeah, it's kind of like an amazing magic trick to see a writer as good as Kelly pull off because it's a, it's that exact thing. And you can think of so many different stories across media that have that at the heart of it, of this character who you know you shouldn't be rooting for, but in a way you are. And just that kind of conflict is like really the beating heart at the center of so much of the story. It's awesome. There's also an interview that I did with Kelly about this exact book in this series and where everything is going, including touching on that character that shows up on the last page and including talking about why the reality stone is particularly dangerous for this character, particularly appropriate and also scary for Star to Hold, which I remember a conversation that, that I was witness to where Jerry Duggan, I remember talking about Infinity Wars, he was saying that we need to do something really new. We need to bring something new to the Infinity Stones. Let's go out there. Let's make something completely unexpected of them. Let's do something that we've never seen before with these like iconic, legendary objects in the Marvel Universe, which have so much weight to them and such amazing stories attached to them. He's, he just made the case in that room for something completely new. And I think we're getting threads of that here. We're getting into that in an interesting way here. And who knows where that will necessarily end up. But I love the boldness of just saying, here's a new character that didn't exist six months ago. Boom. Reality Stone powers, own limited series, so much going on. And it's just excellent. Yeah. All right, Tucker. Yes. Pop quiz. Yes. There are now four Infinity Stones unaccounted for. Oh, man. Soul, mind, space, and power. Uh-huh. Which one would you choose? <sighs> Probably. Not that you have a choice. Yeah. That chooses you. But if, you know, you had your druthers. Yes. Um, man. Soul, mind, space, and power. I would probably take, uh, you gotta go soul stone, right? What? It's like you the wild card. You're freaking hippie. It's the, oh, that's exactly why. You don't know what, it's harder to define. It's a little more strange. It's a little more amorphous, a little weirder. Who knows where it'll take you? I want to go on that roller coaster. What about you? I want the space stone, man. I yeah. want to just be like, oh, cool. I'm going to go uh, get some, you know, dim sum from the yeah. greatest dim sum place I think about that. halfway across the yeah, world. Yeah, maybe that is the right answer. Yeah, I think I'm, about that. I'm right. <laughs> yeah. This is what we understand. I think about that all the time, like when I'm leaving my apartment in the morning and I'm just like, what if I just could just teleport, boom, to the office? No problem. Yeah. I mean, that would be worth it just in that. Yeah. Go anywhere, see anything, do anything. Dear listener, we want to hear from you. Uh, let us know what stone you want. Evil uh, producer Jorge, do we have <laughs> a, uh, an email address for the show yet? We're going to get a new email address for this show. We'll figure out what that is soon. But for now, you can email twinpodcast at marvel.com or hashtag Marvel's pull list on the Twitter. Let us know what Infinity Stone you would choose of the four that are remaining. Yes. You can't have Ripley Stone. You can't have uh, Batista Stone. I'm going to call him Batista now just because uh, <laughs> it's a cool name. Yeah. We got Strike Force number five coming up now. And I love the on the cover it says Ghost Busted. And like I just feel like I have to sing it almost. This is written by Teeny Howard with guest art by Jacopo Camagni, colors by Guru EFX, and lettering and design by VC Joe Sabino. The last issue of this book was so gnarly with the like the ghost stories and all that stuff. And it sort of continues in like real ghosty action up in here as the team is just 
getting through some weird supernatural stuff. I think similar to Morbius, Strike Force sort of inhabits a zone of storytelling of books of the Marvel universe we don't have anywhere else right. of kind of weird off kilter creepy it's not gothic horror like morbius but uh-huh. it's more just like messed up new cool horror that we need yeah it's really and it just it's cool the more that we get to know teeny as a writer because it's easy to forget that teeny is really only been writing Marvel comics for a very short amount of time, given all the crazy, enormous success and wonderful books that she's been putting out. It's cool to, to dig into those things like this, like Excalibur and see like, oh yeah, Teeny is really into that strange stuff, which is awesome. Speaking of strange, uh, what about Stephen Strange, who features in Symbiote Spider-Man Alien Reality, number two, it's written by Peter David with pencils by Greg Land, inks by Jay Lyston, colors by Frank D'Armada, and letters by VC's Joe Sabino. Stephen Strange, yes, features in this book, but not in the way you would expect because this is the alien reality, which of course is kind of a splinter reality that takes place after the, or kind of in and around the events of the black suit storyline. But to have Peter David, who is of course talking about weird, talking about strange, talking about all these kind of off kilter stories, he is the king of that. And that's why I love him so much. This story I kind of don't want to talk about what happens and some of the different reality events that occur in here because that's the joy of this book for me. That's what it's all about. It's about seeing how this reality is different. So I'll leave out some very fascinating characters that we see in here. And I'll talk about Hobgoblin, which is one of my favorite Spidey villains. And we get plenty of Hobgoblin action in here brought to you wonderfully by Greg Land. It is really just a perfect encapsulation of both of these creators' abilities. Peter's ability to just write, you know, these unusual, strange stories that deal with different characters and different kind of character qualities that uh, very few other books really dig into. And Greg Land's ability to um, put that together visually just wonderfully. He he really, really knows how to draw Spidey uh, and uh, makes me love this book. Yeah. And if you ought to know how twisted that reality really is, in that reality, yes. George Steinbrenner bought the New York Mets. Oh. <laughs> Does that mean anything to anyone outside of New I don't York? Know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or anyone who didn't under watch the Seinfeld? age of like, yeah, 26? Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Uh, all right. We got to go to Venom issue number 22. This is part two of Venom Island, written by Donnie Cates, pencils by Mark Bagley, inks by Andy Owens, and colors by Frank Martin and Eric Arseniego, with letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Look, this is like Predator. Man, it is gnarly. It is cool. It is Eddie Brock on the island that he was on in the the classic original island story with Venom and Spider-Man. And um, here it's just nasty. The symbiote has been, his symbiote has been infected with Carnage's personality through the Carnage symbiote. And it's just, they're trying to kill each other. Eddie is really just trying to give his friend back, but things are Wild. There's this uh, one page, which is one of the most stunning pages this week, which is, it's like, I hate to say predator vision, but this like infrared vision across five panels 
seeing a pig and like moving closer and closer to the pig in each panel. And it's all in this like technicolor extra vision. That is how I guess the symbiote like sees things. It is wordless. It is haunting. It is so cool. It is again, like Mark Bagley, man, dude is unstoppable. Great colors on top of that. It's really, really wonderful. On the other side, though, we also have a story with Eddie's son and a big secret revealed there. And, oh, man, the last page of this issue. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh... Okay, we're moving on to my second pick of the week. It is X-Force number five, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Cassara, colors by Dean White and Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I really think each issue that passes with this series, I'm just more and more stunned by where it dares to go and whether that means some of the more visceral storytelling that happens here or some of just visually the most striking stuff that we're seeing across all Marvel comics. It is so, so cool because, look, Wolverine... Uh, and I think Quinn Quire, right, went on a mission mm-hmm. last time around, and it was rough. It was intense. And yeah, look, maybe Wolvie got cut in half. It's fine. Okay. He's still going. But they really, they just do it. They go for it. There is no holding back. There is no like, oh, kind of like show it off panel or just kind of allude to it in shadow or something. No. You are going for it hardcore with this creative team and they bring it. It is really, really awesome. I also love how different characters are getting involved in here from Forge to Gateway to see how Domino after the crazy, tragic, disturbing, disgusting stuff that that character had to go through to see her come back with a vengeance in uh, this issue is so, so awesome. It's so fun. Another really interesting kind of mysterious element to this book is something that I've been kind of curious about since this was announced with all the other Dawn of X books, which is Black Tom Cassidy. Because there was this, you know, Jonathan said, you know, with his plan for this book and, and, and Ben Percy as well, that, you know, I think Black Tom Cassidy was kind of involved. He was kind of a part of the team, but maybe he wasn't. He was going to show up sometimes. He was going to be gone other times. There's some great prose pages to dig into uh, his position here uh, as that continues to evolve and unfold. The way that Joshua Kassara composes a page, the way that he uses shadow, color, when he positions just characters against a stark white background for emphasis, it is so, so beautiful. I It is, you know, it's honestly a joy to read in-universe as uh, a piece of self-evident work. It's excellent. It's so much fun. But on a meta level, when you read books, perhaps uniquely, as often and as much as you and I do, it's a joy to see someone like Josh Guisar. And we've talked about how he's leveled up with this book, how he's just putting in incredible work. But when you take stock, maybe this is just the new year speaking to me, but like looking back to the work that I was introduced to Joshua Kassara with, I think maybe it was the Falcon book. Uh, and I loved his work then, but uh, it is just so much fun to see these people evolving as creators and as artists and um, bringing new things to the table. It's really, really awesome. It's something I, I love keeping tabs on. There are a couple of creators uh, in your next book that I, I think of often in that same exact vein. Yeah. Yeah. Joshua's art has this like really cool texture to it. Like 
Well, yes. Almost like if if you touch the page, you can feel it like a yes. pink. You can feel the grittiness to it, which is similar to the art in Yandu issue number four this week. Art is by John McRae, one of my favorites, written by Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler, with colors by Mike Spicer and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. John McRae does a thing that I love, which is just he can draw something simple and make it feel really gross and yeah. like almost like dirty and slimy at the same time. Like it's just unnerving and I love it. And that helps because you have these, this story in Yondu is about the current Yondu who is very similar to the Yondu we know from the films. And then the future Yondu, a descendant who is really the, the original one we were introduced to in the comics and them coming together, this sort of like odd couple type dynamic. And you get this, this really fun story of them, on this cosmic adventure and stuff like that. But the grossness, the griminess around modern Yondu is so evident when John draws him and Mike colors him. I I can't get enough of it. There's a moment here where the two of them are being chased by a bunch of intergalactic bad guys and yada, yada, yada. But there are a bunch of empty pizza boxes in the ship. And so future Yondu grabs them, takes his arrow and throws them out at the shoot and uses them to coat the essentially the windshield of the ship behind them. Like you get this splat, splut, splitch on the windshield. And then the next two panels of the the aliens in the ship that just got coated say, sir, our view is blocked by old pizza boxes. The other one goes, then we shall die as we lived without morals and entombed by pizza. (laughs) That to me is the encapsulation of this book. It is funny and it is weird and it is just unorthodox and absolutely bonkers. Truly something I hope more people check out and read. It's really, really fun. Totally agreed. Okay. That's what we have for individual issues on sale this week. And for collections, we have Black Panther book eight, the intergalactic empire of Wakanda part three, absolute carnage, Absolute Carnage versus Deadpool, Black Widow, Welcome to the Game, Captain Marvel Volume 2, Falling Star, Doctor Strange by Mark Wade, Volume 4, The Choice, Loki, The God Who Fell to Earth, Marvel Monograph, The Art of Declan Shalvey, and New Avengers Breakout Marvel Select. Yeah. Uh, On Marvel Unlimited this week, we're starting to get to the end of some of the Age of X-Men books. You're going to see those in there. Dead Man Logan, number nine, coming towards the end of that. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the Infinity War stuff where we're getting the Secret Warps one-shots and like those uh, annual books oh, yeah, from this, so fun. this summer. Those were a lot of fun uh, and plenty more. And then in the older issues that are added in, we've got uh, a handful of old Marvel UK Captain Britain comics in there. And then something I am super excited for, a number of issues from Classic X-Men. Now, Classic X-Men from the mid-80s was two things. One, it was a reprint book of like X-Men issues from like just like six years before or seven <laughs> years before uh, because they were so popular and reprints and stuff like that wasn't the same that it was back then. But on top of the reprints, they added new covers and new backup stories. These backup stories are incredible. They are so good. Some of them have art by John Bolton and other amazing artists, but like, they really flesh out stories or they tell very crucial 
quieter X-Men stories, I highly suggest reading the classic X-Men stuff in Marvel Unlimited if you've never read them. Really, really good. That seems like all the comics. Yeah. Yeah. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Jorge Estrada with help from MR Daniel. Jorge, how do you feel about your new nickname, Evil Producer Jorge? I think it's a little underwhelming. I'm kind of disappointed. Huh. Okay. Evil's just kind of like putting it mildly, you know? Okay. Dastardly. <laughs> nefarious. Cantankerous. Nice. Okay. We'll just... Something awful every episode will be uh, will be our go-to. Uh, our audio development manager is Lauren Wiener, and Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. She's also our land shark of audio. Ooh. And uh, hey, we got to give our special shout out to Brad Barton, like yeah. we always do. Double Even B. Even though he is not involved in this show whatsoever. Well, actually, Brad is over there. He's uh, sitting under a table, just listening, reading every comic Brad. as uh, we finish with them. Just <laughs> Double B doing his thing. Flipping burgers. Uh, which is just how I think of him in my mind. He's and he's also my favorite variant cover of the week. Ah, oh, very good. He's oh, a that's, good one. That's brought to you by diseased producer Jorge. I'm those, Ryan. Let's laugh. Okay, and I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe. Diseased. That's good. <laughs>